0: music can only mean one thing it's weekends i'm anna Kasparian. joining me is the lovely wonderful fantastic guitarist nando vila <laughs> and on the ones and twos we got our kale brooks so on we got the a great ones show and ahead twos, baby hell yeah yep yep making us read books <laughs> Helping us produce the thing this is, the show The thing is
1: I ignore Kale And you're Because you're like a good person And very dutiful and stuff And like when <laughs> someone Recommends something to you You like actually read it I just I ignore 90% of the shit Kale sends to me <laughs>
0: I just think like if I can be um, – if people are offering me knowledge that's maybe outside of what I'm exposed to on a daily basis, I should take it, you know? And yeah. and I don't do that with everyone. There's a very no. small group of people I trust. Um, you're obviously among those people and so is Kale. And uh, to be fair, I think I've learned more from Kale than I did from my graduate political science professors. Like that's wow. how unbelievably smart he is. Um, well, I but- believe
1: that. No, and I know that you read everything, so that's why I'm very careful with what I send you because I know that if I do send, sometimes you just send people stuff, understanding that they probably won't read it, so it's no, it's no big deal. With you, like since I know you're gonna read it, I'll just be like, oh, is this like a must read, or is this like, (laughs) like," because I know you won't. Most people just like will read the headline and just blah blah, blah, and you'll actually read the whole thing. So I'm very careful with what I send you.
0: I also get like I I find myself in like this rabbit hole situation when people send me stuff because um you know there was a piece that uh Guastella wrote for Dustin Guastella wrote for um the Catalyst back in 2019 and I had actually read that piece but um you know Kale sent it to us and I couldn't remember if I had so I, I reread that piece and then I don't know why <laughs> like, oh, before I, it I know already. it yeah yeah no I exactly but I kept reading it and then there was um Counterpunch had a counterpunch to that piece that I honestly didn't agree with, but I, I wanted to understand the other side, you know, oh. and, and what the uh, pushback was. So it was... I never
1: read the other side. I don't care about the other side. I just read the correct takes. Mm-hmm. I don't need to like sample the different takes to make up my own line. I, I know who has the right takes and I just listen to what they say.
0: <laughs> no, I hear you, but I also like to hear the wrong takes. So I'm mm. prepared to like cut people up when I need to, All which right. is like one of my favorite things to do. It's, it's a lot All of fun. Right. Um, but anyway, all right. Well, if you also want to be armed with the tools necessary to cut people up intellectually, you should probably get uh, a membership with Verso. And you know what? Nando's got the details about that.
1: I do. If you join the Verso book club and you can get every new ebook, That Verso publishes each month as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you're a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for eBooks only. The comrade tier, the real deal, is $20 a month. And if you join in February, you'll get Breaking Things at Work. The Luddites are right about why you hate your job by Gavin Mueller. Tomorrow, They Won't Dare to Murder Us, a novel by Joseph Andras and translated from French by Simon Lazare. The Rise and Decline of Patriarchal Systems, An Intersectional Political Economy by Nancy Fulber, An Inequality and the Labyrinths of Democracy by Goran Terborn.
0: Mm. Getting better Good and better start. with the There's a novel in there. there.
1: Not just like mm-hmm. boring, you know theory stuff about like obscure things that you don't understand. This is like a novel. It's got some action. I'm sure it does. Mm. I don't know, I haven't read it, but it sounds good.
0: <laughs> it's a good pitch. It's a good pitch. I like that, Nando. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, definitely check out Verso. They're good guys. Lots of great books and uh, you won't regret joining that book club. Yep. So, one thing though, Nando that we probably both regret. Um, well, I don't know if regrets the right word, but I know that I find the discussions about The difference between Democrats and Republicans on foreign policy, um, pretty regrettable, (laughs) because you know, when you when you really get down to the actual substantive actions that are taken by Democrats and Republicans on foreign policy, there are a lot of similarities. Um, And Biden, of course, is no exception. So uh, last Thursday, we found out that Joe Biden approved an airstrike in Syria in retaliation for uh, an alleged you know, attack on U.S. troops in Iraq by an Iran-backed militia. And, you know, for any of you who are worried that this is just a continuation of the disastrous foreign policy that the United States has implemented for decades and decades, um, don't you worry, okay? Don't you worry. Uh, there was, this was a very measured mm. oh, yeah. airstrike. It was very targeted. Um, at, at least that's what NBC would have you believe. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yeah.
1: The main difference between Democrats and Republicans on foreign policy is how they sell the foreign policy to the American people. The same exact policies, just how they frame it to the American people. The Republicans are like, fuck, yeah, we dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan and it was awesome. And the Democrats are like, we did a surgical, tactical, defensive, (laughs) defensive strike. Um, in which we used precise coordinates and intelligence gathered from multiple sources in which we analyzed data points and uh, leveraged our knowledge and assumptions and doubts about the region to uh, then process through the algorithm the nature of the strike, which was defensive, again, in nature, and not offensive, even though we've invaded that country and been in someone else's country, we are defending ourselves. So, yes, that's, that's the big difference between Democrats and Republicans.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, if we're going to kill people abroad, um, we got to just have the numbers to back that up, you know, as long as we do it strategically, and uh, it's backed by science, it's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, and all those casualties who end up dying, um, all of those civilians who end up dying, let's not let's not refer to them as people or civilians, let's just call them yeah. collateral damage. You know? Yeah,
1: or uh, enemy combatants. I mean, the Obama administration defined enemy combatants, literally, as any male between the ages of like 18 to 45. That's it. They're enemy combatants. <laughs> if they died in the line of fire. This this week has been incredibly bleak in so many ways because mm-hmm. you know it's you know there was the there Biden came in okay a few weeks ago this was week this was the week and where the the nightmare kind of solidified. The nightmare that is American politics in this day and age was crystallized because Like in the same week that something called the Senate parliamentarian, who no one had heard of up until this week, um, outlawed the uh, sort of recommended that that the $15 minimum wage couldn't go into the budget reconciliation bill, which the Democrats were like, well, you know, the parliamentarian said it and we can't do it, even though it's just a recommendation. It's not an actual law. They're throwing up their hands and saying they can't do it. The same exact time they're authorizing an illegal airstrike in Syria. And I'm not talking about illegal in terms of international law, which it is illegal in terms of international law, but Mm -hmm. the U.S. doesn't follow international law. International law is only enforced by the U.S. on other people, not on themselves. It is illegal within domestic U.S. law. It is absolutely illegal. They haven't even bothered yet to invoke the authorization for military force from 2001, which is what they use all the time to justify this kind of thing. They haven't even bothered to do that. It's it's just... (laughs) Again, that it's decency, that dichotomy, Nando,
0: yeah. Biden is a decent human being. OK, he wants unity. Yeah. He wants decency. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's OK. Wh- whatever he's doing right yeah. now, it's some, OK.
1: Some 18 year old <laughs> kid is dead on the border of, you know, Iraq and Syria. Uh, and his best friend has his leg blown off. And Joe Biden looks at him and goes like, listen, man, I saw I lost a son, too. You know, I understand what you're going through. I'm sorry I dropped the bomb on you. We had to do it, but you know, I, I lost a son too, so I know exactly what you're going through. And that's 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 the difference between Trump and 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 Biden on, in terms of foreign policy. It's just it's 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 really well, depressing.
0: No, it's it's absolutely depressing. And you know, this week on T Y T, we did this story about um, the F-35. Uh, fighter jets and (laughs) how much of a failure they've been. They cost $100 million each. And uh, this project for these fighter jets was approved back in the 1990s, so like 20 years ago. And it's cost... I mean, just literally trillions and trillions yeah. of dollars. But the planes have been a disaster. They've been a disaster. They They've work. been buggy. They don't work. There have been delays in the production. And part of the reason why there are delays in the production is because Congress literally um, signed off on something known as concurrency, which means that they can begin – they began production on the planes – before they actually uh, not the planes the jets before they actually like did the appropriate testing on them to make yeah. sure that they catch you know all of the design flaws anyway my point is when it comes to anything related to the military when it comes to anything related to US imperialism there is no price tag that congress will not meet there is no yeah. amount of money that they're unwilling to spend i mean the one thing that Congress was willing to approve through a veto-proof vote was the National Defense Authorization Act. This was when uh, mm-hmm. Trump said he would veto it. And the Senate was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah. no, we're going to go ahead and make sure that this is veto-proof. And just real quick, going back to Biden, you know, everything that transpired over this past week just made me feel like he was trolling people like us specifically, like <laughs> Oh, you guys are telling me that the honeymoon's over? No, bitch, your honeymoon's over. Yeah. You know, it's like no fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage for you, and no, we will not overrule the parliamentarian who's completely irrelevant and completely undemocratic. Uh, and yeah, I'm gonna drop some bombs in Syria. Yeah. Uh, how do you well, like that?
1: Well, on this show, like we talk about a lot, a lot about on the left, what we have to do is heighten the contradictions between the left and the libs. And how the libs are now going to react to a Joe Biden presidency? Um, it's always funnier when it's Joe Biden instead of someone like Barack Obama, who is someone that I can see people kind of getting behind. Joe Biden, like they have to kind of go through the motions, even because no one really is inspired by him in any way. But <laughs> Kale, Kale has all the good, all the good lib takes uh, from Syria. Maybe Kale, if you want to come on and, and fire some of those lib tweets, uh, so we can see what what they are.
2: Well, this is just all the stuff you guys sent me. because yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not on oh. Twitter. So. <laughs> but
1: I was, I was there again. Okay, so Amy Siskin, one of the greats. She is like a first ballot Hall of Famer, I think, in terms of like cringy lib Twitter. Uh, so different having military action under Biden. No middle school level threats on Twitter. Trust Biden and his team's competence. Great. What Literally what difference... Is there like a bomb exploding in Syria explodes in Syria? It kills people. I mean, human rights, uh, this, this, sorry, the Syrian Observatory, Observatory for Human Rights, um, which is whatever, but they, they think that this strike killed at least 22 people. Um, you know, yeah, but he, yeah, but Biden didn't say anything on Twitter. No That's what matters. No big deal.
0: No big Yeah, no, it, they don't like the Trump is uncouth. I mean, it's, I'm going to get into this in a little more detail in my decode segment uh, this week. So I'm trying really hard not to like, give it all away during not the to story. Do a spoiler. Um, yeah, not to do a spoiler. But I mean, it's just there's a reason why politics has become like about cults of personality and hero worship, um, just these superficial uh, personality th- Characteristics yeah. as opposed to substance that actually improves people's lives, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: All right, Kale, what do we got next?
2: Well, we, I mean, we should get to that in a moment, but I want to pull up uh, just a couple
1: more. Um, the strike was defensive in nature, but was a response <laughs> to the three attacks endangering Americans in Iraq this month, the official said. What were those Americans doing in Iraq? Were they just there on vacation, just kind of, you know? Hey, we're just going to put up some lawn chairs on the Iraq Syria border and taking some sun, you know, get a nice little tan. You know, they, what were they doing also, there?
0: No, also, I mean, I'm sure Iran was in no way retaliating for the United States just assassinating its top general. Like, what? You know, Why would surprise they do that? attack and assassinating him. You know, I mean, what? Yeah, exactly. No, like, but that's the thing about US foreign policy that becomes so frustrating. I mean, obviously, you know, the tweets that we're sharing with you are incredibly hypocritical. These are people who had panic attacks anytime Trump did anything foreign policy related. And by the way, they should have had panic attacks then. They should have panic attacks now as well. Right. Um, but, you know, what What they refuse to do, like, there's never any real conversation about the actions that the U.S. government has engaged in that leads to this never-ending war. P- Other countries don't just randomly attack the United States. They don't randomly attack our troops. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. They don't hate us because of our culture. They don't hate us because of what we represent. They hate us because we go into their countries and we don't actually, we destabilize them. Well, they do hate us for what we we
1: represent. It's just not what what we think it is. But I'm going to do something that the liberals do on Twitter a lot, which is that, you know, the U.S. uh, empire is kind of like an abusive husband. Who like beats his wife and then goes, "Look what you made me do! Look what you made me do!" After he's like beating the shit out of his wife, like that's what the U.S. empire really is. Mm-hmm. Kale, any more?
2: One more, one more, then we should go one to more. segments. Okay. Uh, right. Just because this is indicative. This is of fun. A... Yeah, is... yeah, it's fun. Uh, this is indicative of a of a <laughs> number of comments we've been seeing.
1: Uh, oh yes, such a quiet attack, no drama. No TV coverage of bombs hitting targets. No comment on how presidential Biden is.
2: What a difference. Everything's great. Amazing. We
0: did a
1: I love <laughs> silent bombing. You know?
0: Yeah. As just long as we don't see it on TV. Us. Yeah. yeah. Don't inconvenience us with uh, a bloody war or any type of bloody actions that we engage in. We're we're enjoying ourselves. We like this boring administration. In their minds yeah. a boring administration. Um just, you know, just as long as you're polite while you're bombing other countries, yeah. it's all good.
1: Yeah. And it's it's a shame that she deactivated her Twitter account. But the, that woman that went on, like, the 50-tweet storm about how, like, listen – Bros, listen, you privileged bros, what you don't understand is that these new migrant facilities for children are way better than the shithole countries that they come from. Like, this is essentially the argument she made. Yeah, You know, like, and you guys are just sitting, living your lives of privilege, judging these migrant facilities and you don't understand you know that this is these these things are great for the kids they love them 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 it's better than like living in shitty guatemala you know like yeah it's just the libs what 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 they don't understand is that the vast majority of people who are kind of shut out of the political system and don't don't respond to it in the way do like in the sort of partisan lens that they do um they see this and they see they see the continuities they they understand the, they understand the continuities way more, way more deeply than the liberals could ever give them credit for and it's things like this like that they understand on some level that they're just full of shit that is if the other guy did the exact same thing they would be you know huffing and and about it but when they their guy does it they're like no 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 no, 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 no. These are not cages. These are migrant facilities, and you know they're they're actually an improvement on the lives of these children. It's it's just absolutely. Yeah. It makes me sick to 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 watch it. I mean, it's just it it you know. There's some pleasure in confirming all of your kind of preconceived notions about them, and that they're not going to change. They're not any different than what you had imagined that they mm-hmm. would behave like. There's some pleasure in that. I I I feel it in my pleasure sensors, but it also makes me sick. So.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And look, I, I also think that it's worth mentioning, like, yes, it, it is a little tiny, tiny bit different. But don't ch Like, it's different in that Biden isn't ripping these kids away from their parents as they reach the border, right? Mm-hmm. That's literally, though, the only difference. That's the mm-hmm. only difference. And the reason why I say that is because when unaccompanied minors come to the United States border— understand that their parents are not sending them here w- if they don't have family or people who can take care of them in the United States. So connect them with their family members in the United States. Do that. And beyond that, that, don't, and beyond that yeah. don't
1: support a military coup in Honduras in 2009 yes. when we are Barack Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton that destabilized that country to a degree which a huge chunk of these migrant children come from that country because of that. Right. Yep.
2: Yeah. Well, this is this is the like the twisted part of it is on the one hand, you know, there's a certain cynicism that does, in fact, make sense, because, of course, you know, a month into the Biden administration, there's no way that like the immigration regime that we have in place right now that's been built over several decades would just all come crashing down or would be dismantled you know, overnight. Of course, you know, this is this is a, a change and, you know, it's better than what we saw a couple months ago, but it's obviously like still a complete abomination. yeah uh, mm-hmm. the the problem is that like the liberals take this like the 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 fact that it's really difficult to actually make progress on this issue and they just they minimize what politics is just to like we're gonna argue over what it's called. We're gonna argue over the name that we call it. Actually, yeah. it's a different kind of facility now. And that's yeah. like again we so us on the left have to we be give able them to soccer say,
1: balls because they right. they're from Latin America they like soccer right they could they kick it around you know that's fine.
2: Biden is giving every child in the facilities a uh, ball. <laughs> Listen, Jack,
1: I've been to Mexico. They love soccer there. You know, like. They're Come kicking up, the ball around. They're running around. They they love it, man. They love it. Just give them soccer balls. That's what I do. We were appropriated two hundred billion dollars in budget to to provide soccer balls for all the migrant children in these facilities.
2: It's kind of like Biden meets Bush. Yeah, <laughs> like, I kind of love it.
1: Yeah. I can't do a Biden because I always slip into a southern accent, which he doesn't have. He has the pencil. Yeah. He kind of has like that Pens- weird Pennsylvania accent, which is so hard to do. I can't do it. He
2: he has the worst. It's it's the hardest accent to try to mimic. It's, yeah, but. Anyways, just it's you know, it's incumbent upon the left then to to be able to say, yes, in the face of like this horrible situation that really is not going to be changing overnight, we actually need to be changing the terrain in which we do politics. We don't accept the yeah. framework that exists right now. We don't yeah. say, Well, it is what it is, and let's just at least call it something nicer. Right? Yeah. So and yeah. I am I'm preempting I feel like I'm preempting Anna's segment so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should
1: jump in. Baby. <laughs> chomping I'm at the excited dip. can't wait yes
0: uh well let me just note that nando and uh his conversation with Wozni lombre on um woke bros that's the podcast that they host together uh inspired this uh decode so I, I had planned a completely different segment um i'm really glad i landed on this uh because it does help to kind of explain the moment that we're experiencing right now so yeah. let's discuss New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a man who enjoyed endless complimentary news coverage and even an Emmy for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, is now embroiled in some pretty major scandals. Aside from being accused of sexually harassing a former staffer of his, uh, he is dealing with a scandal involving the fact that he uh, lied to the people of New York about the number of people who died in nursing homes.
3: Watch the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn and the FBI are looking at the handling of data surrounding COVID-19 deaths in long-term care facilities in New York. This comes after a top aide to Governor Cuomo admitted to state lawmakers that his administration delayed the release of that nursing home information because they were concerned the Trump administration would turn it into a political football. It's not clear whether federal investigators are looking at Cuomo himself.
0: They should be looking at Cuomo himself. In fact, all of us uh, should have been pretty aware of how awful Cuomo was even before this scandal broke out. Now, New Yorkers and the rest of the country were deceived into believing that there were actually 50% less deaths in New York's nursing homes uh, than was actually the reality. Uh, And Cuomo and his administration Um, was forced to admit that the overall number of coronavirus deaths in these nursing homes was closer to 15,000 rather than the 8,000 or 8,500 that they had previously disclosed. So in other words, let's just be very clear here. Andrew Cuomo covered up mass deaths in his state. So it is a big scandal. It should be a big scandal. And to make matters worse, and this needs to be emphasized, the deaths appear to have been preventable, and were likely caused by decisions he made as governor, um, while lauding himself as you know someone who believes in the science. You know he would really differentiate himself from Trump, as if he was much better, much more competent at handling this pandemic. When seniors were still recovering from the coronavirus in hospitals, Cuomo issued a directive forcing nursing homes to allow uh, patients who were still testing positive for coronavirus to be readmitted into these nursing homes. So obviously this led to um, a rapid spread of this virus, which of course elderly people are very vulnerable to. Um, And part of the reason why he made that that decision was because he had cut so much funding for hospitals in the state of New York uh, over the past few decades that that actually led to a lack of hospital beds necessary in order to uh, treat the number of patients necessary during this pandemic. In fact, the Associated Press noted that more than 9,000 recovering coronavirus patients in New York State were released from hospitals into nursing homes early in the pandemic under this controversial directive that was scrapped amid justified criticism that it accelerated outbreaks. So the New York State uh, Health Department initially lied, by the way, about those numbers as well, as was also reported by the Associated Press. The new number of 9,056 recovering patients sent to hundreds of nursing homes is now more than 40 percent higher than what the state health department previously disclosed. Okay, so that was followed by revelations that the governor hit up one of the Democratic state assemblymen to basically threaten to destroy his career if he didn't publicly defend Cuomo.
3: Kim, who's criticized Cuomo over a controversy involving nursing home deaths from COVID, says Cuomo threatened to destroy his career.
4: Berating, yelling, and threatening. that I have to issue a statement um, to that that invalidated what I heard. Um, he asked me to lie to cover up uh, for his staff, and this was done in front of my family. You now he called me; my wife was next, right next to me. I was, you know, right about to bathe my kids, um, and it really just put, you know, my family and my and my wife um, into shock um, and trauma.
0: I mean, how did all those Cuomo sexuals miss this? How did they not realize that Andrew Cuomo uh, was this big bully, someone who would uh, carry out the same actions that you would uh, see, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida do? Uh, Ron DeSantis tried to suppress coronavirus data, and it appears that Andrew Cuomo did the same thing. Uh, but no one was really paying close attention to Cuomo's wrongdoings in the beginning of the pandemic. I know that some New Yorkers certainly were. Aware of it, and maybe this comes as no surprise to them after they had lost their jobs and the health care benefits that come along with that employment, and then they lived through the experience and witnessed the horror of Andrew Cuomo cut billions of dollars in the state's Medicaid program. As this virus was, uh, you know, leading to more and more bodies piling up outside of hospitals. That's what Cuomo was doing. That barely got any news coverage. Cuomo's Medicaid redesign team, MRT, released its proposals to cut $2.5 billion from the state Medicaid budget, including $400 million to hospitals as they battle coronavirus in the next year. As written in Jacobin, you should definitely check out this piece. The article continues to note he continues to push to meet a budget shortfall by reenacting deep Medicaid cuts rather than passing wildly popular tax increases on the 0.01%, even though this would require him to turn down $6.7 billion in federal coronavirus aid to the state. So in other words, the guy who forced nursing homes to readmit sick coronavirus patients to free up hospital beds. Is the same guy responsible for the lack of hospital beds in the first place? Sean Petty, for instance, uh, of the New York State Nurses Association, told Democracy Now! that he believes Cuomo is probably the single most important person in terms of the uh, drive to shut down or or, uh, basically close down 20,000 hospital beds in the state. Let's hear more of what he had to say.
5: For instance, I would uh, call Governor Cuomo probably the single most important person in terms of uh, the drive to close down hospital beds in this state um, over the last 20 years. In New York State, we've gone from 73,000 beds to 53,000 beds uh, from the year 2000 to the to the present time. So uh, specifically because of policies that Governor Cuomo has pursued, We are now twenty thousand beds behind um, where we need to be in terms of trying to to scale up our capacity to these unprecedented levels. Governor Cuomo estimates, I think, this week that we need one hundred and forty thousand hospital beds.
0: That interview didn't happen a week ago. That interview happened in the beginning of the pandemic or early on in the pandemic in March, and no one in the corporate media gave a damn. No one paid attention. In fact. Uh, the response to Andrew Cuomo and his uh, fancy data regurgitations was applauded by the corporate media. Uh, despite the austerity horror show that was taking place under his bungled leadership, Cuomo was hailed as a competent, capable, and credible leader. Social media was littered with hashtag President Cuomo because he became the heroic substitute to the uncouth circus that Trump starred in daily. That's what uh, voters wanted, someone who would make them feel like everything was going to be okay, someone who would calm their nerves. Uh, Rolling Stone celebrated him, uh, saying that Andrew Cuomo takes charge, the New York governor on leadership, hard truths, and what comes next. I mean, the sub-headline in the feature was pretty bad as well, where they write, The governor of New York found himself at the center of a deadly crisis. His response has helped guide the nation. Remember, he's cutting billions of dollars in Medicaid as his own constituents are losing their jobs and the health care that comes along with it in the middle of this pandemic. And by the way, the tranquilizing nature of Cuomo's statistical regurgitations was exactly what Americans craved at that time—something that was shallow, something that um, you know was actually pretty toxic once you scratched the surface, but still had the ability to tranquil- tranquilize Americans and give them a substitute to Trump's personality. And what stands out the most about this whole fiasco that's taking place um, is. That, you know, he really didn't serve as a real substitution when it comes to um, what people want ideologically in this country. So substantive ideological principles among parties is important and what we're experiencing and what we've been experiencing for decades now is uh, what a political scientist um, named Peter Mayer refers to as the cartelization of political parties, where they become incredibly similar um, because at the end of the day, their whole purpose is to serve the elites. And so we end up engaging in conversations regarding hero worship, or cults of personality, as opposed to actual substantive ideological principles that bind us together. So while the corporate media pundits would have you believe that the political parties in the United States couldn't be more different, in reality, their core foundation is really similar. Parties are controlled by elites to serve the best interests of elites. And that's why, regardless of what constituents want, regardless of how popular, something like uh, a $15 an hour minimum wages, doesn't even matter if red states are passing it through ballot initiatives. Both parties on a federal level will fight against it as hard as they can. So political scientist Peter Mayer also wrote this. There is less and less choice in policy terms, suggesting that political competition is drifting toward an opposition of form rather than content. He wrote that in his book, uh, The Challenge to Party Government. So how do parties really differentiate themselves? How is it that, you know, we can see politics is so tribal in this country when we have two parties that are actually very similar when it comes to their foundation and who they're um, meant to serve? Well, Mayer also writes in Ruling the Void, competition between parties in these circumstances can be intense and hard fought. But it is often akin to the competition on show in football matches or horse races. Sharp, exciting, and even pleasing to the spectators, but ultimately lacking in substantive meaning. And I mean, we can certainly feel that. We can certainly see that when... U.S. imperialism is uh, still pursued by both parties, doesn't even matter if it's Democrat or Republican. It's certainly the case when it comes to austerity measures. Uh, Really, the only differences we notice uh, has to do with uh, decorum, with personality, uh, and and whether whether or not we see politicians as heroes. And I think that's a problem. Mayor elaborates on it further in the next clip.
6: How do parties in these constrained and squeezed circumstances justify or legitimate their governance? How do you justify the fact that you as a party should be in government and should be leading the polity? What is it that gives you, as it were, the right and gives you the strength and gives you the credibility to run government? Government is about one thing, driven by forces largely beyond the control of parties, and elections are something else. that begs, then, other questions, which is that if elections are not about these issues, these core issues of government, what then are they about? And what then will they be about? Uh, Paraphrase Raymond Carver, what do we talk about when we talk about politics? We talk, perhaps, about something anodyne, like leadership and trust and so on and so forth, which is general and non-party specific. Or we talk about something maverick and particularistic, like local-level politics, personalities, identities, and so on and so forth. Or, as Krastev also warned, we talk about something dangerous and the parties talk about something dangerous. We talk about a populist politics which doesn't address key socioeconomic policy areas but instead talks of things like religion or ethnicity or values or whatever it might be which are removed from the socioeconomic concerns of government but which can motivate elections and drive competition.
0: That talk was from 2011. I mean, Mayer was uh, certainly ahead of his time, and uh, his work is super relevant to what we're experiencing today. Um, Anton Jaeger also uh, elaborated on this further in Damage magazine. I want to read you an excerpt from one of his pieces where he writes that the result of the infamous void described by the Irish political scientist Peter Mayer uh, demobilized citizenry, forced to rely on the market for meaning and survival, only taking cues from the state as to how to maximize its competitive positioning. Collective agency was abdicated to globalization and institutions were passe. In the 1990s, the majority of the left willfully participated in this shift, trading working classes for multitudes and the work uh, and the market for the network. And so you know the fact that um, Americans are more and more atomized, uh, the fact that you know some of uh, these important institutions, especially uh, labor uh, have have weakened has Basically led to, uh, let's say, the Democratic Party um, being able to morph more and more into the party of the elites, and we're certainly seeing this in, um, you know, their voter base as well. Uh, the fact that they're certainly uh, more appealing to um, suburban white collar voters uh, and less and less appealing to, uh, w- you know, working class Americans who uh, traditionally saw the Democratic Party as at least trying to serve the best interests of workers. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore, especially based on how uh, this fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage is playing out, uh, which is incredibly frustrating. And so, uh, you know, just to go back to what the focus ends up being about regarding, you know, uh, elections and the discourse that takes place. Inevitably voters delude themselves into thinking that there are significant differences between these parties right now. It's based on shallow things like personality um, and, Even though both parties still further imperialist foreign policy objectives and pursue endless austerity measures, you know, you have people going into two different corners as if these two parties are just so different, fundamentally different. And look, my theory is that since political parties represent elites... It shouldn't be surprising that they would use manipulative tactics based on shallow characteristics in order to sell us things, right, to sell us their party and to make us feel good about the fact that we support their party. Um, You know, if you take a look at the fossil fuel industry and how they convinced Americans that it was totally fine for them to uh, keep producing more and more plastic as it was um, polluting the the world, the, the earth. Um, you know, they use manipulative tactics that focused on identity politics, uh, that lied to Americans and made them think that what they were engaging in when they buy these products and then recycle them, um, you know, makes them a good person. In reality, the vast majority of the plastics we recycle doesn't actually get recycled. But why is it that so many Americans think that it does? Well, it's because fossil fuel companies put out ads like this
5: but when americans were saving their plastic to reuse it Lobby groups just bought advertisements telling them, throw it out every time, we'll just make more plastic out of our unlimited, consequence-free supply of fossil fuels. And that's when plastics came up against their first big hurdle. J-R-R.
7: On April 22nd, one in every ten Americans took part the in The public rallies. outcry on that first Earth Day led to political action.
5: Well, that actually wasn't going to work for the plastics industry, but they had a compromise they felt would work for everybody. They'd lie. So the plastics industry, fossil fuel corporations, and a number of other companies formed a front group called Keep America Beautiful. They got an Italian guy, dressed him up like a Native American stereotype, and then shot this commercial.
3: Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country, and some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it.
5: I mean, yes, sure, they could have just easily made their products less disposable. But why do that when you can just spend a few million dollars on an advertisement to convince you it's your fault there's more trash everywhere?
7: And it worked!
0: There are a lot of themes uh, with that manipulative ad campaign uh, that we can touch on. But what really stood out to me was the use of... uh, Native American identity in order to manipulate Americans to feel good about a product, to feel good about engaging in something. And we see very similar trends happening with the Democratic Party today and also the Republican Party. I mean, America First is uh, a part of the um, ideological branding that the Republican Party has engaged in to make you focus on things that actually don't improve your life in any substantive way. Um, and also, doesn't really differentiate uh, the Republicans from the Democratic Party when it comes to actual substantive issues, um, including austerity. And so uh, let me just end by saying that what we're also noticing right now as a result of this engagement in um, all of the different things that are sold to us in the void that's been created by these cartelized um, parties is uh, It turns people into hypocrites in a lot of ways as well, because you find yourself, if you've engaged in this, having to make excuses for the very same actions that you criticized the other party for engaging in. So for instance, uh, Joe Biden just approved an an airstrike in Syria. It's a continuation of the foreign policy that we saw with uh, the Trump administration. Trump was a continuation of the foreign policy we saw in the Obama administration. And I can go on and on and on and on. So when the very people who were critical of Donald Trump for his foreign policy uh, turn around and see that Joe Biden, someone they support, is engaging in the same thing, how do they, how do they explain that? Uh, is that like a wake-up call for them? Do they realize that maybe they should understand that there are issues that they should hold both parties accountable for? Mm. Not for Amy Siskind, who tweeted this. So different having military action under Biden. No middle school level threats on Twitter. Trust Biden and his team's competence. In other words, Dropping bombs is totally fine as long as the guy green lighting dropping those bombs is polite, and as long as I like him, I didn't like the other guy, so this situation is different, and we see that play out in politics over and over again, nando
1: yeah it's um first of all that was a that was a great segment, but uh the Andrew Cuomo thing is maybe the most perfect example of how rotten liberal culture is at its very core. I mean, Andrew Cuomo is an absolute monster. That's just, it's not like he's, he's just a very self-evidently like a, an absolute monster. Like in so many both, really in, he, both in, in any substantive way, I mean, thousands of bodies like in the ground because of him, thousands of bodies because yeah. of his disastrous decisions and corruption and malfeasance and all that stuff. Both in style, he's just an absolute monster in terms of style. I mean, uh, you know, he is not a nice person. He is a he's an asshole, um, and they love him. They love him. Mm-hmm. They love him, folks. And again, I, I mean, we talked about this a little bit on TYT, but the just the, the mere presence of Andrew Cuomo is offensive to me in some way. I mean, his father was also governor of New York, and his brother is the anchor for the for the most important primetime news show on the most important cable news channel in the country. and It's
0: crazy. It's, it's crazy. crazy. It's absolutely crazy. That's some yeah. North
1: Korea shit, <laughs> you know? It is. It
0: is. no. And that's the amazing thing. Like, uh, the in- inability for so many people in this country from both parties, it doesn't even matter. Like, their inability to just have a moment of self-reflection. There are so many conflicts of interest... Why are members of Congress allowed to invest in individual stocks? Do you guys understand how crazy that is? They make pol they write and pass policies or refuse to pass policies uh, that would affect these very companies and their profit margin. Like, what what, we live in an insane country when you really stop and think about it, and for us to judge. How you know other countries are governed, or how other things, how other leaders run their countries, is ridiculous. It's just laughable. Yeah.
1: No, and the, and the Peter Mayer clip is is just it's it's the perfect distillation of what politics has become in the neoliberal era, right? I mean, it's just for again for people our age, people younger than us, it's very very difficult difficult to imagine a different world because we grew up in this world, in this world of politics purely as a spectator sport right I mean he, he even compares it literally to a, a football match or a horse race which is what the political press by the way calls political journalism they call it horse race coverage yeah. um, so we, we the, politics used to not be that way politics I mean for all its flaws in the 20th centuries which which there were many it was still even in this country it did actually involve substantive issues about who gets what in our society? And now that's just all those debates are "quote unquote" settled. The trajectory is the same, linear, like linear. It really does not matter who's in it. The, the broad trajectory of wages, of social outcomes, of all you know these big picture kind of indicators of the health of our society are linear. And um, mm-hmm. and and it's just we've those those questions are settled. They cannot be touched. They cannot be touched. Anyone who dares touch them is excommunicated. And it's about something else. It's about other things. It's about nonsense. Really. Yeah. And again, that situation cannot last forever. Like, it cannot last forever. It will eventually change. It will eventually break. There will be some sort of rupture. But it could go on for many more years, you know? Like, it could go on for... You know, because, again, the big picture, when you zoom out, like, you know, it could go on for another decade, could go on for another 20 years, you know. Um, sometimes these these moments of kind of stasis and, and being stuck is, is can, can go on longer than, I mean, for one person's lifetime, it could, you know, it could be our whole lives, for example. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I can't get the feeling, I can't shake the feeling that we're just stuck, that there's just stuck. We yeah. can't do anything. Nothing can be done. It's just... Like yeah.
0: I, as you're talking about all this, like I don't know if you've seen that movie Nomadland. Um, I haven't seen it yet. It's a okay. You you should watch it. Yeah, um, I know. I know about watched it though, last yeah. night.
1: Yeah,
0: probably not the best Friday night movie. Um, no. but what really stood out to me about it, I'm not. There's no spoilers or anything, but I mean, everyone knows. Like anyone who's seen a you know an ad for it, it's about you know people living in poverty, um, and. It's partly about people living in poverty. It's a huge theme in the movie. Um, you know, people living out of trailers and things like that, um, out of their vans. And as I was watching that, I... I it's just... It, you feel gutted. And the entire time I was, like, trying to hold back tears because I hate crying during movies. Like, I try to, like, hold it back. But as I was watching it, I at one point I realized there wasn't a single moment where I questioned whether these people were politically aligned with me on social issues. Like I didn't, like it, it didn't matter to me because as you're watching that movie and seeing people live like that, you re- you relate to them. They're people, they're humans, yeah. right? And no one, no one on this planet should live like that. And we're talking yeah. about people living full-time, working full-time jobs, going to work at Amazon, working a full-time job and not having enough money to pay rent. That is, a, that is so common in this country. Yeah. And, You're right. There there has to be a breaking point. Something's going to, you know, cause a rupture. I don't know when it's going to happen.
1: Impossible to predict. It is. That's the sad reality. Yeah. I mean, and those of us who kind of participate in politics in some way, we do it through the media. I mean, the only thing we can do is kind of prepare ourselves for when the break happens, you know, and prepare as many people as we can by arming them with you know, information, ideology, the tools that they would need to sort of become um, active participants in a politics that kind of is revived. Because, again, the other thing that is not guaranteed is that the rupture will lead to better outcomes. The rupture could lead to a much worse outcome. Like things can always get worse. That that's that's one of the sort of things that is it's been ingrained in our lives as Americans. Like we've been. that's beaten into our kind of programming since we were children is that just kind of as time goes on progress happens we kind of Mm -hmm. all believe that in some way but that's just not true history is rife with examples of things getting way worse for a long time right it's not a linear progression in any in any sort of way so yeah um i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen it's it's
0: it's something that stands out to me a lot actually if I'm watching um Sopranos, which was pre-9-eleven or
1: uh or started pre-9 i I've been
0: romanticizing. Yeah. Well, yeah, it started before nine-eleven. Um and then even even just like thinking about I've been I told you on TYT, um I've been romanticizing a lot. And I know there were issues in the country, don't get me wrong, I'm not like over-romanticizing, but I was thinking a lot about the late 1960s and like how different America was culturally, how there was this emphasis on funding the arts. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles. We both live in Los Angeles. Um, Laurel Canyon was known for all of these classic rock artists getting together and, and jamming together. And it's just like that sense of community, that sense of really appreciating art to the point where the federal government was funding it, you know, all of that stuff has been like wiped away. And yeah, things can get worse in some aspects, especially when it comes to the security state and surveillance state, when it comes to defunding programs that actually enrich people's lives. In a lot of ways, the country has gotten worse, you know, and I think it's really important to emphasize that for people.
1: Absolutely. All right. Should I get to mine?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, you know, we need unions to help us. Uh, we do. That's and the strong only way labor. Out. To save the day. Really, mm-hmm. it's
1: the only way out. And that's what my segment is about. So it's been kind of a whirlwind beginning for the fledgling Biden administration. Left wing critics like ourselves have pointed out that just in the first month of the administration, the Democrats have backed off the $2,000 check in favor of $1,400 checks which still haven't arrived, by the way. They've backed off the $15 minimum wage, citing the Senate parliamentarian's objection, and they dropped the new type of facility for detained migrant children. They bombed Syria again. By the way, what does the parliamentarian think about that? But there is one piece of legislation that has not dominated the discourse, but it quietly passed in the House on February 4th and would now have to pass through the Senate. If passed, it would be one of the most consequential pieces of legislation in American history it would transform the way workers in this country can organize themselves into labor unions. It's called the PRO Act, and Biden has indicated that if it does pass the Senate, he will sign it. Now, here's the part of the segment where I typically would include some sort of generic news clip that would help intro the main topic. But as I was researching the PRO Act, I found that there was basically no coverage of it on cable news outside of OAN. But I did find this father and son duo who have a YouTube channel called the Matterhorn, Matterhorn Business Development. Let's have them intro the PRO Act.
4: It's called the Federal PRO Act, or the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. Mm-hmm. So these acts and these laws have very good titles. If you just looked at it on a voting ballot oh, and you yeah. had no idea what it was... Everybody should have the right to organize. We should all protect the right to organize. Well,
1: Now, as far as I can tell, this father-son duo, they're consultants that help small businesses focus on something called profit first. So let's see what they think about what the PRO Act actually is.
4: Okay, so let's
1: get right down to the bottom line. What
4: is this thing? If we just cut right to the heart of it. So in the Washington Post article that I found, it basically sums up the PRO Act as would amend some of the country's decades-old labor, so obviously, obviously outdated. That's outdated. Yep, yep. Uh, give workers more power doing during disputes at work. Add penalties for companies that retaliate against workers who organize, and grant some hundreds of thousands of workers collective bargaining rights they don't currently
1: have. Now, now all if- that sounds good. Yeah, all that sounds good. I can't see why these guys would object to any of that. But there's a reason why these business nerds are so hostile to it. The Pro Act would be the most comprehensive piece of labor legislation in about 90 years. Jacobin's Alex Press spoke to Brandon Magner, a labor attorney who has written extensively about the Pro Act, and he said, The Pro Act is the first act where they're going, to, they're going from point A to point Z through everything that's been, that's been seen to be wrong with labor law since Taft-Hartley at least. In fact, it even goes to the original Wagner Act. For example, they get rid of employer standing and representation hearings, which a lot of people have criticized from the beginning, but no law has tried to get rid of until now. That's important because while you've had things like EFCA, which is the Obama era reform, which was attempted and and shelved, which tried to make it easier to form a union and to get a first contract. Then you had things like the permanent striker replacement bill, which would have made it easier for already unionized companies to get a successor contract because the right to strike would have been a lot stronger at that point. I haven't seen a bill that combines the idea of needing to form unions and needing to be able to bargain and effectively wield the strike weapon to get later contracts. The PRO Act also tries to bring in more employees under its jurisdiction, so it's trying to make the NLRA apply to more sectors of the workforce. So when I say it's comprehensive, I mean it. They're looking at all of the angles of how labor law enforcement can be strengthened in this country. So this would amount to a total overhaul of labor law in America. The possibilities for labor, should this pass, are almost unimaginable. Because in America right now, the law is stacked against labor in a way that is totally unique in the developed world. Now, America's history with labor is an interesting one. It is both one of the birthplaces of the modern labor movement, but it is also the country with perhaps the most violent suppression of labor activity. In fact, May Day, which you all know is celebrated around the world came from the Haymarket Affair in 1886, in which workers in Chicago went on strike for an eight-hour day and were then murdered and their leaders hanged. But by the 1930s, the power of labor could not be suppressed any longer. And in the midst of the Great Depression, American workers organized with a degree of militancy that we have not seen since. In 1937, during the depths of the Great Depression, there were over 4,740 strikes in a single year, the greatest strike wave in American labor history. To put that in context there were only seven major work stoppages in 2020. And the law at the time reflected labor's militancy and power. I mean, in in 1935, FDR signed the National Labor Relations Act, better known as the Wagner Act, into law. It was the first time that the law guaranteed private sector workers the right to organize unions and bargain collectively. The result was a flurry of labor activity. According to a piece... Uh, In Jacobin by Colin Gordon, between 1935 and 1945, bolstered by new legal protections and a tight wartime labor market, union membership skyrocketed from 3.7 million, or just over 10% of the labor force, to almost 15 million, over a third of the labor force, in just a decade. Now, this freaked business out, to say the least. The landscape for the American worker was transformed overnight. The power of labor during this period of American history is the main reason why when you think of the 1930s, you think of impoverished masses and superlines. But when you think of the 1950s, you think of a nuclear family with a nice little house in the suburbs and the white picket fence. But this labor militancy could not be tolerated by capital for long and they worked furiously to undermine the Wagner Act almost as soon as it was signed into law. The result was something called the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, just 12 years after the passage of the Wagner Act in 1935. Here's Richard Wolf explaining just what Taft-Hartley did.
3: It had a remarkable clause, which has remained law to this day as I'm speaking, and the clause goes like this. If at a workplace, a factory, an office, a store, There's a union, and let's say half the workers in this place have voted for the union and joined the union and have a union there, and let's say that that union negotiates with the employer and gets a contract, let's say a wage increase of 10 cents an hour. Under the Taft-Hartley law, then and to this moment, that union must, must give Anything it wins with the employer to all the workers there, whether they're in the union or not, whether they joined the union or not, whether they pay union dues or not, whether when the union, if it thought it had to, called a strike and had workers go out and tell the public about their situation to help pressure the employer to meet them halfway and give them a wage increase. The workers who went on strike and therefore didn't get paid had to give to all the other workers who didn't go on strike, who didn't lose a day's pay, the same benefits they won. The Taft-Hartley law, in effect, created an incentive for workers not to join a union, not to pay the union dues, because they would get whatever the union won, whether they did so or not. That's fundamentally unfair, and you know it, and I know it, and the people then knew it. It was a hammer blow against the labor movement.
1: It was a hammer blow against the labor, labor movement. You know it, and I know it, and they all knew it at the time. They also, by the way, outlawed communists from being in the labor leadership, which they had been up until then, and it basically created a structure in which the labor movement was always going to eventually bleed out. And here's how Jane McAlevey McAlevey talks about Taft Harley and how it wound up destroying labor solidarity in this country. She writes, the quote, the ban on sympathy strikes and boycotts meant that truck drivers could no longer refuse to deliver goods to a factory where the workers were on strike. Food service workers would have to break through a picket line to prepare food for replacement workers or risk being fired if they didn't. That didn't just weaken strikes in obvious ways. There was a more nefarious psychological objective aimed at undermining human solidarity, which is an instinct that emerges when one group of people sees another in a profound in profound duress or under attack, as in a hurricane or a flood. Strikes build the same kind of bonds that events like natural disasters produce. Banning sympathy for the idea of the collective good was part of a broader long-term effort to rewire humans from acting collectively to acting individually. In think tanks such as the Pelerin Society, discussions were underway about the need to re-socialize worker behavior to better fit conservative economists' views that people should act only out of self-interest. But forcing workers into re-education camps was too blunt an instrument in the United States. It was more acceptable to so- slowly stoke individualism by making the default acts of human sympathy illegal and so punishable by termination. So back to the Pro Act. Essentially, what the PRO Act would do is reverse the the nefarious legacy of Taft-Hartley and go beyond it in many ways. But the question is, will the Democrats actually pass it? Well, if the last 40 years are any indication, the prospects aren't great. Here's Alexander Herzl-Fernandez, a researcher for the Department of Labor, on the Majority Report with Sam Cedar.
7: It's just so striking to look at how conservatives and Republicans versus Democrats have treated labor unions over the decades. While conservatives were hard at work pushing Republican lawmakers to vote for cutbacks to labor union rights, Democrats were generally on the sidelines. Um, if you look at uh, state level control, you know, Republicans, as soon as they gain trifecta control of a state government, they push for cuts to collective bargaining for public sector labor unions and right-to-work laws. But Democrats don't have a similar portfolio of policies that they push when they gain power across the states. There's no democratic equivalent of, say, a right-to-work law. And that's similarly true at the national level. During the last period when Democrats controlled uh, Congress and the White House under the Obama administration, uh, the Obama administration notably let labor reform sort of fall by the wayside. There wasn't a concerted push to rebuild that power at the federal level, either.
1: Well, the good news is that some in the labor leadership seem to have learned their lesson. The PRO Act was really created and pushed by a union called the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. They've led the charge from the very beginning. And in an interview with Jacobin, the vice president of the Painters Union, Jim Williams, discussed Barack Obama's betrayal of labor in 2009 when he promised to pass car check and then didn't. Williams said, we also have a pretty good memory. In 2008, when, when then-Senator Obama, who pledged to support of the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, which also is known as Card Check, became president, he had large, larger majorities in both the House and the Senate. We had the opportunity then to pass the EFCA, but it wasn't the priority of the administration. When we met with candidates during the last election cycle, we made sure that the PRO Act was number one on our issues, and we said, if it's not in your top priorities, we'll make sure to never support you again It's that important to us. We knew that there's going to be a lot of competing interests for legislative priorities going into a new Biden administration and going into a time period where we have slim majorities, but majorities nonetheless in both House and the Senate. So we have to hold the politicians accountable that we supported. So we wanted to get out early and get out in front because far too often labor law reform is not a public debate. Too often, it's done with politicians inside Washington, D.C., in private. But we feel that the current, with the current majorities, we're at least going to get labor law reform and the PRO Act in the public sphere. The debate can be public. For us, that's a win to be able to once and for all talk about the broken labor laws in this country and build a movement that includes people beyond the labor movement to fight for real change in this country. We think it's the most important piece that labor unions can be doing at this time. Well, what about... Uncle Joe himself. Well, here's what he said on the campaign trail.
8: Wall Street didn't build this country. Ordinary middle class Americans given half a chance to build it. And the only reason we have a middle class is unions, not labor unions, organized labor unions. You're the reason why we're going to rebuild the middle class. It's been decimated by these policies. You all know it. As your president, I promise you, I will stand with you. You look at my record, I've always stood with you and never been afraid to take on the opposition, corporations, and the big money. And you know, my dad used to have an expression. he said, say, Joey, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck, about your dignity, it's about respect. There will be no trade agreement in my administration without organized labor sitting at the table. God love you. I need you. Look me over. I promise you, you'll never have a better friend in the White House. I guarantee it.
1: I guarantee it. Well, Joey had a good opportunity to follow up on that kind of rhetoric when thousands of workers in an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, decided to organize a union. That fight is ongoing. They are sending their ballots in right now through March 29th. An assist from the most powerful person on the planet would do a lot to give those workers the belief and confidence to press on in their fight against Amazon. In fact, many of the tactics that Amazon has engaged in to combat the unionization effort would be illegal under the Pro Act. I mean, some of the tactics that they've engaged in are already illegal under current law, but that's a different story. Well, Joe Biden has been absolutely silent on the fight in Bessemer. According to Politico, When Joe Biden was running for president, he promised union members that he would be the best friend labor has ever had in the White House. Now in office, Biden is keeping his distance from the biggest union fight of his early presidency, one involving a powerful company that gave to his inauguration and his pledge to help his administration fight the COVID-19 pandemic. The White House on Wednesday declined to directly endorse the union election at the e-commerce giant Amazon Alabama's warehouse. So as ever, we can't rely on these Democrats alone. If the PRO Act is going to pass, it's going to require sustained pressure from below and militancy from organized labor. And make no mistake of it, there is no left or progress without organized labor. It's never happened before. And in all likelihood, it will not happen again. The PRO Act would go a long way to revitalizing the labor movement in this country. At one point, labor in America really did change the world and it could do so again. But more important than that, can we just pass the PRO Act to own these dweebs.
4: And we've said this numerous times, and I still get a bazillion comments, okay? Um, we aren't Republican, Democrat, or anything else in between. We look at information from a unopposed view and an unbiased view to look at what helps people and what doesn't help people. Mm-hmm. I am also not pro Uber and Lyft. Every time you leave me a comment that says, oh, well, I did this thing and Uber took 90% of my money. I'm like, Okay, I think that's bad, okay? (laughs) I agree with you. That's stupid, okay? But I'm not saying that because Uber took 90% of your fare, I should lose my two sources of income. Right. Because that's actually how I do a lot of my work Mm -hmm. is on an independent contracting basis, Mm -hmm. right? So it actually ruins other people's lives because you got ripped off by Uber. Guess what? I know you don't want to hear it, but if Uber ripped you off, don't drive for them again. Right.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that all of you watching right now go to the Matterhorn Business Development YouTube channel and make fun of them in their comments. But if you wanted to do that, you can go ahead. It's your choice because we simply cannot, under any circumstances, let them win.
0: That was so good. Um, what is it with uh, business minded people and awful button-down shirts like oh. just the worst and loudest button-down yeah. shirts um, well they all buy their that's my they all buy uh, their
1: shirts shirts from Wyatt Coke uh the coke <laughs> uh like the like the Coke air that started started his own shirt company yeah so that, that's, that's right he, that's yeah. right
0: I forgot about that guy um you know it's interesting because the taft-hartley Act um, obviously had the objective of dividing and conquering among workers and you know it certainly succeeded um, and obviously uh, created a disincentive for people to join unions. Uh, and what we're kind of seeing play out right now in the political discourse is a little more of that same, for lack of a better word, like trend or culture, right? Like f- finding ways to emphasize the quote unquote differences that Americans have, uh, whether it's based on gender or, you know, nationality, race, whatever it is, just find ways to create these small pockets of movements that are not going to have uh, the organized effort necessary to actually fight for a better country, like a fight for better, you know, policies, even if it has to do with, um, you know, equality laws in the workplace, right? You need like a broad coalition. You need labor. You need people to be willing to work with others that they might have some disagreements with on, you know, cultural or social issues in order to create... An equitable system for workers in this country, and uh, what we hear from both parties is just this emphasis on everything that makes us different from one another. Yeah, right. It disempowers us.
1: Yeah. Well, beyond that, it's just the only way to really flex muscle to really flex any That's sort right. of power is is through a labor union. Really, we can we can shout on YouTube all day, and maybe it has a little effect and stuff like that. But you know, until people kind of get organized around labor unions nothing will really change. I mean, I, I, I think about the, the George Floyd protests um, last summer, which seemed like forever ago. What do we got to show for it? I mean, th- some of the largest mass demonstrations in American history, what do we got to show for it? Very, very little. Almost nothing, really. Because without connecting those to actual labor power, nothing will change. It's just nothing will change. Like, yes, there is there is something nice about like all of us sharing in in some sort of public display and all that stuff. But Nothing changed. Same with the Iraq war protests, massive protests all over the world. Did it stop the Iraq war? No, it did not stop the Iraq war. You know, so unless you have labor power behind you, you're not going to change anything. That's how civil rights was achieved. It was the combination of the civil rights activists with labor power. They worked hand in glove to pass civil rights. And what's remarkable to me is, I mean, I I really, when I was researching this, uh, the segment I was expecting, you know, maybe Chris Hayes did a segment on on the PRO Act, uh, you know, on MSNBC, something on, you know, I found one little measly segment on CNBC where they had like a 30-second interview with Richard Trumka, the the, the head of the AFL-CIO, um, and then a bunch of segments on OAN, like the crazy right-wing network, and then a bunch of segments from like Dan Crenshaw walking and talking and is like in the hallway of Congress with his eye patch saying like the PRO Act – that's real bad. You don't want that because, you know, right to work. Who cares? Yeah. Who doesn't think about right to work? So, yeah, just zero coverage from the media uh, on television for the Pro Act. And, you know, that's just again, it's just an indictment about of, of our entire media culture that doesn't cover any substantive issues. It's just, you know, nonsense personality stuff.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I I had some thoughts on the possibility of Biden doing something about this, but I think it's better to bring our guest on because, um, you know, I'd love to hear her thoughts on it. Uh, So joining us now is Nicole Ashoff, who's on the editorial board over at Jacobin and also published a fantastic article that you guys should check out in the latest issue of Jacobin titled The Biden Doctrine, um, delves into, uh, you know, some of the alleged foreign policy differences between uh, Biden and Trump, which we'll get into, and is also the author of Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age, and also The Profits of Capital. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking about the PRO Act and the fact that Joe Biden, as a candidate, ran on this idea that he's, you know, pro-worker, pro-union, um, and wants to ensure that there's equality in this country. And of course, uh, now that he's president, he has seemed to kind of like back off of mentioning unions or labor at all. Um, Do you have any hope that he's going to in any way push for the passage of the PRO Act?
9: Uh, I would say I'm skeptical, certainly, Um, particularly uh, given his silence on the Amazon campaign, uh, the campaign to unionize in Bessemer. I I mean, if we think about the last, you know, 30 years of uh, the Democratic Party's relationship with organized labor, I don't think there's a lot of hope uh, for a big Change and also, just given Biden's own kind of track record, so no, not super hopeful, unfortunately,
0: yeah,
1: what did you make about this uh this airstrike in Syria?
9: Well, unfortunately, it seems to uh just reinforce a grim tradition of new presidents bombing within their first one hundred days, so um depressing uh but unsurprising
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely find it unsurprising. Sorry, Nando, did you have a?
1: No, no I mean, I just—it's it, just been a kind of a, a a double whammy week in foreign affairs because there was the big news, obviously, about the airstrike in Syria, which we were all we all just kind of throw up our hands and say, like, you know, what are you gonna do, <laughs> really? And then um, there was this declassified intelligence report, which explicitly tied uh, Mohammed bin Salman to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, which we all knew was 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 true, but like, it's just kind of now that's on the record that the U S government actually believes that as well. Um, And then Joe Biden, the Biden administration said that like, you know, we're really concerned about this, but, 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 but we're not going to do anything. We're not going to do anything in terms of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. So like, it made me think, what is the Biden doctrine? Like, what is the, what is, is there, is there a meaningful difference between the Trump uh, administration and the Biden administration in foreign affairs? What are those differences?
9: Well, uh, actually, I was reading in the FT that uh, a Dutch newspaper referred to uh, Biden as Trump with manners, which uh, was, of course, uh, caused a bit of an uproar. But I don't think it's as far off. I think it's useful always, particularly, um, you know, as leftists in the United States to keep in mind the real difference between uh, kind of domestic orientation toward policies at home, and the U.S. as superintendent of global capitalism. Um, and when we're thinking about the U.S. role as superintendent of global capitalism, continuity is is really the watchword. So it's not just that oh Biden is is no different from Trump, but really um, we can think through many you know decades of, of U.S. executive administrations and their policies toward. know, whether it's toward geopolitics, trade, the environment, um, continuity is really the watchword there. So I don't think, uh, you know, that's, I think, where we need to start from, because certainly over the past four years, uh, there have been more than a few kind of hysterical assessments of how Trump would kind of rewrite the liberal international order. Um, And I think with, you know, him out the door and, and Biden in office now, we can kind of take, we should take stock of what Trump actually did and, and where we see Biden going. And, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't think uh, we should overstate how much Trump really kind of undermined or reorganized a global order that benefits primarily giant corporations and, and the global elite.
0: Yeah, so to, to follow up on that, because I think that's an incredibly important point. Um, And sometimes I see people make the mistake of... Uh, believing Trump's rhetoric when behind the scenes, he actually continued to expand on the foreign policy that we find objectionable, including um, increasing the use of drone strikes. Uh, you know, he went into this trade war with China. And, you know, while there can be arguments made certainly regarding the negative impacts of free trade and all of that, uh, what was interesting to me was it was a continuation of some of the hostility toward China that began under the Obama administration and his pivot to Asia. Now, of course, Trump is not some like sophisticated, you know, careful person. He just kind of comes in. He's like a bull in a China shop. Um, but, you know, if you really look at the uh, focus, um, you know, and the re- some of the rhetoric that Trump used, it was just a it was this fear mongering about the United States losing its hegemonic, you know, position in the world as China is experiencing, um, you know, its, uh, I guess increased influence, uh, in the globe. And so what do you think is likely to happen with the Biden administration? Uh, because they both campaigned, Trump and Biden campaigned on some pretty, uh, you know, they would make China the boogeyman in most of their political campaigns that ever touched on foreign policy. Uh, Do you think that Biden is going to continue with this uh, antagonistic uh, foreign policy toward China as well?
9: I think Biden is treading very carefully because, you know, as much, you know, we, sh- we can certainly say that Trump did not kind of rewrite the global order. But it, by the same token, the global order, the global geopolitical order is not the same uh, as it was four years ago, um, particularly the relationship between the U.S. and the EU um, and China and the EU. Um, China is the largest exporter to nearly every country um, in the world. And the EU has um, only developed tighter ties and a a tighter kind of dependence on access to Chinese uh, markets and access to Chinese goods. Um, So when we think about these kind of interdependencies, I don't think it will be so easy for for Biden uh, to just kind of reassert the role of the United States. You know, he had that foreign affairs article where he talked about the need for the U.S. to get back at the, the head of the table, right, and, and kind of take on the mantle of, of leading the global international order. Um, but things have changed in four years. Um, that being said, the kind of tough on China rhetoric that has bipartisan appeal um, in the United States and, you know, going back, of course, before um, Donald Trump, is something that I think we will see escalate. And for a few reasons. Um, you know, initially, there was this kind of fantasy that integrating uh, China into the sort of WTO, world order of global trade, would change the country from the from the outside and and make it uh, more into a kind of a liberal capitalist country. Well, that project has failed. Um, And instead, we see China succeeding on its own terms in uh, developing not just uh, broadly, you know, its economic power, but also um, inserting itself into spheres that the U.S. sees as um, being in direct competition, such as high tech. Um, so U.S. policymakers are, are very wary and uncertain about how to deal with, uh, China's economic ascent. So this is something that is worrisome. And I think, um, the response of Biden, uh, you know, you talked about Obama's pivot to Asia, which was both military and, um, you know, his attempts to craft the TPP, um, to exclude China. I think that Biden will, will try to continue that, that kind of a two-pronged strategy, but how much support he receives from the European Union, uh, for example, is is unclear. Yeah,
0: I, right, and, I, I Real uh, quick, real quick. And when we talk militarily, you know, we're talking about increased arms sales to other countries in the region. Um, and by the way, that's, that's certainly pushed by, uh, private contractors, military contractors and weapons manufacturers in the United States. Um, so there's like a profit model behind it as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's what. I think it's important to point out uh, what that means militarily. Uh, it's just going to further destabilize that that part of the world. Um, and there is certainly um, a, a profit motive behind that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the sense, of, especially reading your, your article, the Biden the, the Doctrine and Jacobin, that on the one hand, you know, while Trump maintained more or less the same kind of policies, I think that he did on some sort of, Superficial level, um, cause a lot of people around the world to not really trust the United States. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not. I'm not talking about like liking the United States. I'm saying that that before Trump, there was a certain sense um, that you know the U.S. was the empire, of the U.S. which is, was the hegemon, but there was kind of more or less this competent management of the flows of capital and trade and and you know, maybe we would go off in these little wars every once in a while, but like more or less the sort of liberal order was maintained and that Trump kind of maybe scared people into thinking, Oh, maybe the U S can't be trusted uh, long-term to maintain that. But on the other hand, the main, the U S still has the 800 bases around the world, the 200,000 troops around the world. So it still has the actual hard power that is unparalleled and unrivaled in, in the world. And I get the sense that that, that split is kind of a very dangerous one <laughs> that that when the when China surpasses the United States in in, in GDP, like a sort of symbolic uh, moment, you know, that around the world will be like when China is the the biggest economy in the world, and not the United States. That the U.S. with all the guns is not going to react very well to that. They're not going to take that kind of lying down, and that something kind of unstable might happen. I, I don't know. The, do you get that sense at all? <laughs>
9: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's, it's worrisome. I think it, it's useful to kind of step back and, um, you know, situate, um, kind of the, the, the success of Trump in scaring everyone, right? And, and why we saw that happening, um, within the longer kind of crisis of neoliberalism and the, um, kind of, Kind of endless wars that the U.S. is waging, right? Which are which are two different ways of thinking about it, but obviously they go together. So when Trump was elected in 2016, you know that was also the year of Brexit, and it was also um, a year, you know, those kinds of couple of years there where we see a sort of surging right wing um, critique of neoliberalism and and what Trump called globalism. Um, and and people like Steve Bannon, right, which we don't hear about as much anymore, but um, this kind of right wing critique of neoliberal globalization or neoliberal capitalism um, as being something that was hurting working people, hurting the sovereignty and power of the United States, um, that the liberal international order that had prevailed since, you know, in the post World War II era. Um, was not benefiting America anymore, so we needed to um, get rid of that. And, and it was a sign of this kind of crisis of neoliberalism, right? But at the same time, you know, in that context, we have a very steady um, kind of climate and landscape of endless wars, Um, perpetuated by the United States, particularly after September 11th, an ever-increasing defense budget um, and a very steady kind of global presence of of U.S. military might. Um, So I think the the combination of these um, and how they'll play out over the next, uh, you know, four years at least of Biden's uh, administration, um, it's uncertain. In part, um, I think that the, the... sort of crisis of neoliberalism and this idea that the sort of neoliberal world order would break down, particularly, you know, after the crisis of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, I think that's, we can say that that's not going to happen and that uh, global, like global capitalism is is really robust. Um, but we also see with the bombing of Syria that the U.S. is not also willing to take a step away from playing global policeman. Um, so the kinds of tensions that come from both of these, uh, you know, two different ways of looking at the global world order are are certainly distressing, um, particularly if the U.S. decides to deal with China by ramping up toward, you know, some type of um more extreme kind of hot war situation in the in the South Pacific.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit about the role of the Federal Reserve and how that can impact um, you know the U S. and its standing as a hegemonic power because. Uh, while China certainly is experiencing this ascent, um, at the same time, when you think about the fact that the U.S. dollar, um, has the power that it has, right? It's used in the global economy. Uh, during COVID, uh, the global economy could have had a complete nosedive had it not been for the United States Federal Reserve essentially pumping money into, uh, the system, um, under uh, quantitative easing, something that I know you, uh, write about and talk about quite a bit. Um, how does that play a role in, in you know, U.S. foreign relations, if any?
9: Well, this is a really interesting and kind of confusing situation for even mainstream economists, right? This sort of new normal of 0% interest rates and the willingness particularly since the 2008 to 2010 financial crisis by the major um, economic powers in the world to pump as much money as necessary into global stock markets and bond purchases um, and quantitative easing in general we see a continuation of this policy right Um, and a sort of endless willingness to prop up uh, global capitalism. And so the question is, well, what are the limits of this? And why is the United States able to just perpetually, um, you know, just print money, um, and not worry about, uh, inflation or increased wages? Um, and this is an interesting situation. It's not something that economists totally understand, right? What are the limits of, uh, QE forever? And, um, it's it's not really clear how far it can go i mean uh, nando earlier you were talking about the need for uh you know labor movements to actually uh, create lasting uh social change well we also uh need the power of labor movements to actually push for wage increases right the the cost of capital um and the cost of wages are historically low um there are very few constraints. And the political strengths that we constraints that we should be seeing, right? Uh, sort of challenge to the US dollar, um, we're not seeing that. And that's one of the ways that we can kind of uh measure the resiliency of um neoliberal capitalism, right? There really isn't a challenger um in terms of creating an alternative global kind of monetary order. So that's significant, certainly, when we're thinking about how robust uh, global trade is. That's a big factor.
1: When I I look at the situation, uh, the political situation in the US, I look at the political situation in the EU, I look at the political situation in China and Russia, and it's just all, it all just seems very bad. Uh, And, uh, but there's kind of a, a, a slight glimmer of hope emerging from, um, some of the smaller countries in in South America, you know, Bolivia just had the return of the mass um, in Ecuador. There's equi- uh, e- e- elections this this uh, spring that could signal a return uh, of the left. Um, it seems like Latin America might be kind of the front line of any sort of uh, left resurgence in the world. How do you think uh, the Biden administration is going to react to a sort of new pink, tide like a new generation of pink tide in Latin America?
9: Well, if 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 um, you know Biden, it, it's hard to say. I mean, at this point, if if Biden continues uh, with the kind of Obama era, um, you know, relationship to Latin America, we'll see kind of mixed signals, right? Um, certainly, we can uh, recall the 2009 Honduran coup, which was very dodgy, uh, but also the kind of uh, um, increase in autonomy uh, that Latin America experienced during the Obama years, right? So these kind of conflicting um, processes. I'm not really, I'm not really totally sure how Biden will, um, you know, interact with uh, potential opposition from Latin America. I think his primary uh, goal at this point is to kind of um, solidify and restore. Uh, the kind of Obama era global capitalist order and try to um, fit Latin American countries into that kind of framework, uh, which is, you know, not to the benefit of smaller Latin American countries. So um, it's also a question of how willing and able these kind of Latin American countries are able to carve out a kind of autonomous sphere in the global economy, which is which is much harder uh, than than it would appear to be. Right, it's extremely difficult, and so that can sometimes overshadow the the more overt kind of political relationships: who's our ally, who's our enemy.
0: I wanted to end on possibly some good news you know in your piece um you're you're very fair in in pointing out what biden has done so far that isn't so awful uh so for instance rejoining the paris climate accord um does that give you hope that biden will uh pursue a much more progressive climate policy uh or are there still things that you know make give you reservations
9: well, the Paris Accord is kind of a consensus capital friendly global agreement that's pretty much unoffensive to most of the major players. So, it's good that Biden is willing to to jump back into that. Um, you know, he's also made noises about um, you know, increasing uh and and sort of building a Buy America program to deal with some of the catastrophic shortcomings of Uh, the kind of just-in-time global production system that we have, right? So if we can, um, you know, um, make the U.S. less vulnerable to uh, supply shortages um, in future crises and also increase jobs, uh, particularly in manufacturing in the United States, I mean, these are possibilities. Um, And certainly, you know, it'll be nice to not have someone that's incredibly embarrassing (laughs) speaking for the United States at global summits. Um, that's always a good thing. Uh, so, you know, I don't think um, we can expect anything really different from Biden, but he may sort of grease the wheels to toward a uh, long term goals, right, of, of of reducing emissions or, um, you know, increasing manufacturing jobs at home. There, there's always a possibility for that.
0: All right. Nicole Ashoff, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, if you guys haven't read her piece in uh, the latest issue of Jacobin, please do so. You should all be subscribed to it. Uh, And it's the Biden doctrine. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed on the interview today. Thank you again, Nicole.
9: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, all right. Foreign affairs. Always very, always kind of depressing, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of good news in
1: the foreign affairs arena.
0: The only thing that gives me a, I mean, it used to be a lot easier to persuade Americans to support going to war. Right. I mean, I remember before we invaded Iraq in 2003, it was actually incredibly unpopular to be any type of public figure who speaks out against invading Iraq in that preemptive war. Um, the Dixie chicks uh, suffered the yeah. consequences of saying that they were against it. Um, so the thing that makes me feel a little bit better is that at least voters realize that when Mike Pompeo pretends to care about the Uyghur Muslims in China, um, he's pretending like people know he's pretending and he doesn't care about human rights at all. He's just trying yeah. to uh, persuade Americans to engage in yet another disastrous, you know, conflict that we don't need to be engaging in.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's true, but I, it could also change because I mean, true. After, yeah. after Vietnam, there was something called the Vietnam syndrome in which politicians understood that the American people were like totally averse to any sort of uh, foreign war to the extent that in, in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, like, crappy liberals in the democratic party were being pretty aggressive in Congress and Senate in the Congress and Senate, like investigating the Reagan administration for, you know, Contra, all these things like, you know, uh, blocking them from, uh, engaging in, in wars in central America and things like that. Um, but then we got desert storm and that kind of made us feel good about war again. And then we forgot about it. Um, the Vietnam syndrome was over and then that's how we got a rocket in 2003. um, so it could always, it could always change. You know, they, what they usually do is just like pick out like a little weakling, um, you know, like Grenada well, or something to invade. And then, and then make us, you know, we go rah, 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 the troops again. Well,
0: I mean, look, I think that some of Trump's messaging on China was actually very effective because he, well, Pompeo was focusing on human rights issues Trump's like, not going to bother with that. No one's going to believe that I care about that. Uh, I'm going to focus on globalism. They're taking your jobs. It's unfair. We're being ripped off. And that, that certainly did resonate with people, right? So um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the, uh, the appetite for war uh, could change even, even now, depending on what the messaging is.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the like most things that actually do take root, in 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 this kind of thing, like the messaging that is effective, it is based in a kernel of truth, and it is true that the China did take a lot of Americans' jobs, you know, because like we Nicole. wanted them to.
0: Our yeah. government, it's it's by design, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly.
1: Like Nicole mentioned, that like this this sort of incorporation of China in the, into the WTO was just just funneled American jobs like over to China, like and, like put it on into in you know hyperdrive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, after nine, like nine eleven, did um, really scare freak people out in America about like Muslims. So that we were able to get away with the war on terror for a long time. People have gotten over it. Um, they tried to do the Russia thing, and outside of like only like you know MSNBC pilled people like that. Actually, um, it didn't really take into it didn't really take root. You know, as like a meaningful kind of, you know, let's get a, let's get our juices flowing for some for some war stuff. Like it didn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's China, and China does seem like. In, there there might be some level of popular um kind of desire to actually maybe confront China I mean I don't think that no one no one supports like a war with China but I do think that there is some level of popular constituency around you know uh standing quote-unquote standing up to China um and I worry about that I worry about that like yeah, me what too. What, are we, what are we gonna do what are we gonna do like weaker Muslims like even if like like assuming like it's all the really bad thing like what are we going to do about it like that that's never answered you know
0: yeah and and by the way i mean like it's i think it's important to be intellectually honest and acknowledge uh those types of issues not you know basically brush them aside or minimize them while also acknowledging that going to war or or leading to any type of conflict is not the right way to to approach the situation and and also to acknowledge that the united states government does not care about human rights abuses they don't no. They don't care about human rights and it is abuses. We human rights border. abuses ourselves at, at the border, as you guys know. Uh, we we have no problem killing civilians through drone strikes based on incredibly flawed intel. And then when those civilians die, we refer to them as collateral damage. I mean, it, our U.S. government doesn't care about human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when they cite that as the reason for why they engage in these conflicts, just understand they're full of it. Like they're yeah. they don't care. Period. No. Um, that's not to say that the human rights abuses aren't taking place. They are. But even so, and even if uh, you're sold that the government cares about those human rights abuses, uh, invading those countries, having any type of military action against China is not going to make the situation any better, as we've learned from multiple wars that we've been engaged in.
1: Yeah. Or
0: multi- multiple military actions we've engaged in. I mean, look at Libya absolute disaster.
1: One. one of the one of the best.
0: Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, we do have a salt segment for you guys today. Um, I talked about this a little bit on TYT, but I, I wanted to go back to it. I want to talk about it again because Senator Kennedy is... A-
1: no relation to...
0: The- no, no, no. I'm I'm talking yeah. about. Um, his name is Senator John Kennedy, <laughs> it's but it's uh, it's not who you think he is. Um, so uh, I'll I'll present the story. Let's talk about it. So, Republican Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana had this exchange with the Fed Chair Jerome Powell that made my blood boil. I wish that there were reporters who actually cared about these types of exchanges uh, and actually called Senator Kennedy out for being a hypocrite, a liar, and a self-interested ghoul. Uh, But I'll do that. I'll do that on their behalf since they're unwilling to do it. Um, And so here's the exchange that I'm talking about. And I'll explain to you later why it is infuriating.
8: You have strongly encouraged Congress to pass another coronavirus bill, $2 trillion. And I guess- T- tell me if you could, in just a couple of sentences, uh, why you think we need to do that. If we're looking at six percent GDP growth this year, and uh, as soon as the end of this month, we'll be back where we were in February two twenty.
4: Actually, 2020. Senator, I, I have consistently not taken a position on on this bill.
8: So you don't you don't you don't have an opinion about whether we ought to pass president biden's bill
4: i i as i've said since the december press conference i think on every public occasion when i've been asked about it i've said that <clears throat> it's not appropriate for the fed to be playing a role in in these fiscal discussions about particular uh you know particular uh, provisions and particular laws It's just we we didn't comment on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We didn't comment on the CARES mm-hmm. Act. We don't, we just, you know, it's not our role uh, okay. to
8: do that. So so your opinion is if we don't pass the bill, you're cool with that?
4: Well, that, that is, that would be expressing an opinion. So that's what I'm not doing is is expressing an opinion.
0: <laughs> All right. There are no winners. There's no winner in this uh, exchange. Jerome Powell, mm-hmm. the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, actually does have a pretty big opinion on whether or not uh, financial aid is necessary when it comes to failing corporations. When it comes to failing corporations, let's print it out, baby. Let's go ahead and just pump up these failing corporations with money, low interest money. Right. They get a bailout. They've been getting bailout since 2008 they got another massive bailout to the tune of trillions of dollars during the uh coronavirus pandemic. So he's got opinions. He's the head of the he's the head of the Federal Reserve. Like the fact that he's trying to like rise above it, like I don't really have an opinion on relief for, you know, those average people. I don't I don't I don't deal with that. So he I have an issue with him clearly. Yeah. But Go ahead, Nando, because I'm about to go on a rant. I want to give you a chance to jump well, in.
1: I, I, I'm, I want to see your rant, so maybe just go ahead. I, okay, what I have to say okay. is not that particularly interesting. Yeah.
0: And then you have Senator Kennedy, who, through his line of questioning, is trying to make it clear that he believes the, that the economy is doing real well. It's doing so well, guys. Look, What's what's the GDP, which, by the way, Jerome Powell doesn't even know what the GDP growth is. Like, what is your role? Like, what's your job? You don't know. You can't answer that question. Okay, fine. But he's trying to make this point about how we don't even need to pass another round of coronavirus relief. We don't need to do that. Everything is great because the GDP, which is a flawed metric to look at when it comes to the real economy, indicates that we're seeing growth, guys. Okay, and then and then they turn around when it comes to increasing the $15 or increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Then they'll change their messaging to. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, guys. We're in the middle of a pandemic. These companies are really hurting. The economy is really hurting. If we increase the federal minimum wage, these companies just can't do it. They'll collapse. Everything will collapse. The economy is really suffering during this pandemic. And no one in the media calls it out. No one in the media calls it out. And by the way, Republicans like Kennedy pretend like they care about the deficit, but they don't care about the deficit uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, tax cuts for their millionaire and billionaire friends. As uh, you know, I found this tweet by a reporter back in 2017, because, of course, Senator Kennedy is one of those Republicans who voted in favor of Trump's tax cuts for the rich. Senator John Kennedy tells reporters his focus is on three things, tax cuts, tax cuts and tax cuts. And then he takes off his bracelet and shows it to us. And it says failure is not an option. Well, he's a massive failure. Our federal government is a massive failure. So apparently failure is an option. This is this is me being very salty. So this is, you know, the, is right, <laughs>
1: the right topic. I, I, I'm just, I, I want to pop popcorn. Um, no, watching that exchange between Jerome Powell and Senator Kennedy. Senator Kennedy is, you know. Not our best. He's not, not the best. Um <laughs> this guy's a senator. He's like just shockingly unprepared for a discussion. Yeah, with,
0: fog over one those, like...
1: Yeah, one of the most powerful people on the planet. I mean, it just made me think like about like what you were saying, that this guy like is so terrified of expressing an opinion. And you know, I, I understand on some level because he is literally one of the most powerful people on the planet, and it just made me think about how. The Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, these like completely undemocratic institutions, just completely outside of any of the democratic controls that we would want in any sort of sane system really are deciding everything about the fate of the world, like on some level, like I'm exaggerating yeah. a bit, but like just the amount of money that they could just pump into whomever, you know, like here, you get money, you get money, you get money. Like they can just do that. And and they just decide it on their own. They don't consult with congressional leaders. They don't, you know, they certainly don't get elected. They don't like none of this stuff is subject to any sort of public debate. It just happens. Like it's like these kind of, they're the they're the elected nothing not elected like they're the elders who kind of oversee our economies these days. They, they've grown more and more in power and 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 less and less accountable to any sort of democratic input. And yeah, they run everything. And, and it ba- barely any, anyone understands it. Even very smart people. I barely understand how the Fed works um, or how the European Central Bank operates. But they really govern our lives. And it's just it's one of those things that makes you a little bit kind of despair because it's like we have no access to these we have no ability to storm these bastilles to so to speak you know like i'm not talking about like literally walking in there and murdering them but like to to, we don't have we have no way of like having any effect on who these people are um and what they decide and what they and it's just it's crazy
0: the part about powell's unwillingness to share an opinion that's so infuriating is that he is being asked a line of questions regarding GDP growth that is artificial based on the Federal Reserve's actions, right? So the Federal Reserve pumps money into failing corporations. They turn around, engage in stock buybacks and all sorts of nonsense that artificially inflates the stock market, Mm -hmm. which is Included in this measure of the GDP growth, right? And then that measure is being used by Senator Kennedy to tell the American people, the economy's doing great, guys. You don't need any help. And then he asks Jerome Powell to jump in, and he's like, "Oh no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know anything about that. I'm just trying not to share any opinions on it. No, you're part and parcel of the system that's screwing over the average American right now. You should have an opinion about it. But you know, he's a coward. Imagine having a position of power like that and not using it to actually help people. Yeah, using it to help." you know, the worst elements of society and then turn around and be an absolute coward when you can't even answer a single question uh, yeah. by, you know, a pathetic and laughable Louisiana senator. That's my salt. That's my salt for you guys today.
1: Very salty. All right, yes. should we welcome um, young Kale?
0: <laughs> Let's do it. Into Oof.
1: the mix. Damn, that's... You fucking went off. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know. Like... that
2: that I mean that's why we got to do this because like you do such a great job of encapsulating the rage that people feel and then expressing it in clear terms of like this is fucking absurd like it's, yeah. it, and, and like Nando's saying like it's it's so frustrating when there's such a limited uh, means of actually doing anything about it right now so but at the very least we can at least like you know just tell them to fuck off on YouTube I guess yeah <laughs> like
1: It does does
0: feel good to do at least that. Um, But, you know, I'm hoping that I don't think that we or anyone doing anything on any platform is a substitution for labor. And, you know, Nando says it all the time and it's true. But, I mean, the very small thing that I think we can provide is clarity on what's actually going on. So Mm, when, you know you know when he tries to present himself as like someone who's above the fray who's trying to be a good guy by not jumping into something controversial no he's just being a coward that's right. what he's doing because he's part of that rigged system um right. but anyway yeah, and,
2: it, and if he doesn't yeah. if he doesn't say anything business continues as usual you know the people that are benefiting from this right now will continue to benefit so he can just say yeah i'm not i'm not giving you anything what are you going to do
7: Um, and And
0: by the way, you know how I found out about that exchange through the financial times, they have this awesome 10 minute podcast every morning. I listen Mm -hmm. to it every morning and they just briefly mentioned it. And I'm like, I'm going to find that video because it sounds awful. And -hmm. then I listened to it while I was on a run. Um, and yeah, I ran a lot faster. (laughs) It definitely gave me some fuel because it's just so (laughs) it's infuriating, you know, anyway, Let's uh, get some super chats.
2: Yeah, so we have a couple super chats right now. But Fun. if uh, if you want to ask us a question and you want us to answer it live right now, we're all here, not pre-recorded. Uh, Doing it will, live, baby. That's right. We will answer your questions. So send us a super chat, and uh, we'll get to it in the next couple minutes, hopefully. Um, but there were some questions that came in earlier in the show, uh, and kind of pertaining to earlier segments. And uh, we should jump on those first. There was a question uh, from a viewer named Sue who is asking, is money and politics the only issue we need to focus on in light of Biden overtly dismissing the platform he ran on? Our government is absurdly unresponsive.
1: Um, I, no, but definitely not the only issue. Money in politics is an important part of a broader problem. Um, I mean, you know, Tom, Tom Thomas Ferguson, the investment theory of politics, like you can pretty much track um, money flowing into the system and, and policies being passed. But it's but the the, you know, money in politics does not is not the only thing. It's just it's really not like it, it's it's not the only reason why politicians do the bad things that they do and are unresponsive to the uh, needs of regular people. I mean, that really is comes down to fundamentally the imbalance between power in the power between capital and labor. I mean, that's that's what really is at the heart of uh, all of this. Um, you know, there were th- there were attempts to do uh, reforms to money in politics, like they 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 haven't worked. Um, they kind of backfired, actually. Um, and at the at the core of it is is this imbalance between the power. Of capital and the power of labor, and as long as that balance of power is tilted in the way it is, even if we outlawed political contributions, they would they would absolutely still um, hew to the needs of capital over over the needs of labor. I mean, that's just that's that's the end of it. That's I don't know, like, uh, but again, I'm not saying we should we, we should absolutely get money out of politics. Don't get me wrong, but like, yeah, yeah, it a piece of the, it is a piece of the overall problem.
0: Richard Wolf touches on this a lot, and he was the one who really persuaded me that uh, money in politics is not the end all, be all. That doesn't mean it's not incredibly important. I mean, just to give you a, a more recent example, and I keep repeating this because I think it's important for people to know, you know, Biden backing off of the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, and also entertaining the notion that the coronavirus checks. I mean, he backed off of this, but uh, there was a point where some were worried that he was actually going to do more means testing in regard to who would get the, um, you know, next round of coronavirus checks. And it was immediately after he met with um, corporate CEOs in the White House. This was during the, uh, impeachment trial. Impeachment trial is taking place. Everyone's paying close attention to that. In the meantime, while we're all distracted, Biden meets with these corporate executives at the White House. Prior to that, uh, he had received a letter from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And you know what the communication is in both the meeting and the la- and the letter? Um, hey, don't forget who your boss is. And, and so it has a, it has a huge impact, but in a, in a capitalistic society, as Richard Wolf talks about, um, you can pass regulations, you can pass reforms. Cap, those with capital will find a way to chip away at those regulations. They always do. And history proves that. Um, so I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. European countries have, um, have much, m- much tighter restrictions on money and politics and yes, but European countries have slightly better systems, uh, than ours but like it's not like they're it's not like they don't have it's not like corporations don't (laughs) control uh, the political system in some way like i mean you know they they restrict money in politics you know either by restricting the amount of time you can campaign or straight up just restricting money in politics but uh um yeah it's not the be all and end all i mean we just have a test case right there across the pond you know it's 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 pretty clear right
2: and and fundamentally the problem at the end of the day because like you're saying like the uk and other uh other countries have publicly financed elections right and they're still dealing with similar trajectories that the u.s is on the u.s is notably worse amongst these countries yeah but the but the underlying thing that you know and this doesn't so there's a structural factor that we always have to keep in mind that just because it's structural doesn't mean it, it inhibits any progress because we have the last 150 years to show progress within capitalism but at the end of the day when you have the economic resources in the hands of some people and then you have the you have a different group of people who are making political decisions about what to do with the resources in society people who own all this stuff can at the end of the day say yeah i'm not going along with your plan i'm going to withhold investment i'm going to park it in a bank Uh, overseas. I'm going to uh, disinvest, meaning driving up unemployment, meaning driving up, uh, you know, shortages of of key goods. And then the politicians get all the blame from the public because you oversaw this horrible economic crisis. How could you do this? And what's never really uh, challenged in that process is the fact that it was these capitalists, these corporations who sometimes uh you know in concert with one another and sometimes just kind of independently looking at the you know the terrain in front of them do I want to invest in this economy or not they'll say no I'm not doing this and they're the ones who are causing the crisis and so yeah. but at the end of the day like again the I think this this whole idea of money and politics it's kind of like the fact that we talk about this at all it's getting brighter right now sorry um The fact that we talk about this at all is kind of like a post welfare state world that because we have certain expectations of like, well, politics should be a little bit different. It should be uh, more democratic. It should be more fair. Like working people should have greater voice in government. And and the thing is, that like that moment in time when all those things were, I don't want to say absolutely true, but more relatively true than they are now was kind of just a blip. It was like forty years mid-century, like of the twentieth mm-hmm. century. And so not and that, you know, we believe that we can get back to at least that, perhaps even much better than than what uh, you know, what the arrangement was mid-century uh on a number of fronts, for some obvious ones of like social rights and um certain actual uh you know genuine meanings of like human rights and political freedoms. Uh, but we can also have a former democratic economy and, uh, but it has to, it has to go through all of these different layers of, you got to get rid of the the people, you got to get rid of the institutions. And then fundamentally you have to try to undermine who owns the resources in society. Like you have to decommodify, you have to nationalize or socialize. You have to take these resources out of the hands of these, of these people that are only interested in maximizing their profits and make it democratically owned and controlled.
0: Mm. Yeah. You know, I, and I also want to just quickly point out another example of how, uh, you know, major corporation was able to get uh, Congress to approve the F-35 uh, program without even mm. having to, I mean, I'm sure there was money in politics related, but there was also a strategic thing that they engaged in that actually um, pressured members of Congress uh, to sign off on that project, even though um, even if money in politics wasn't an issue. Right. Like even if there were laws in place preventing it from happening, what Lockheed Martin did, uh, and they're the ones who were awarded that contract, was they opened up shop in many different states uh, and essentially said to uh, lawmakers representing all those various states, you know, if you approve this project, it's going to it's going to lead to jobs in your district or jobs in your state. Um, and it's going to help with your reelection campaign. And so they, what they did was they opened up these little factories and it's not efficient in any way. Right. It's, as we've talked about before, it's more efficient to have all these workers in in, in the same place so they can collaborate with one another um, and Obviously, there's a, an interest in keeping them separated so they don't organize. That's that's something that we talked about on a previous show. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. But what they did was persuade members of Congress that through this job creation, they're going to have an easier time getting elected. That has nothing to do with money in politics. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Congress in the 1990s approved that project. And approved this idea of concurrency where they can immediately begin production on these jets uh, even before they do the necessary testing to find design flaws. So it's just an example of how money in politics is not the end-all. Amazon
1: Amazon just did the same thing with their their new headquarters thing where they just like kind of – Okay, who's going to give me the most? <laughs> you know, like who's yeah. going to give me the most? They didn't have to fund any, a single campaign, you know. All they had to do is like referring to direct investment, you know.
2: Yeah, the the who's going to give me the most referring to cities of, of which local government. Yeah, which city yeah.
1: is going to give me the most? Yeah. And, and then I'm obviously going to do it in Washington DC so that I can so that I can have my headquarters in the capital of the most powerful country on earth and I can also own the newspaper that covers the city. Um, of the capital, you know, it's a, it's a good, clever trick that Mr. Mm-hmm. Bezos does. Um, yeah. Well,
2: we, before we start dwelling on that, I want to jump to another question, uh, coming from Erica, who is a longtime viewer who asks, how first do time, we long into... time. We got a first uh, time, long time. No, I don't know if it's a first time, but definitely a long time. Okay. Um, but she asks, how do we go from workers should have more rights to workers deserve more rights? Our expectations mm-hmm. seem so limited.
1: Did I did I say anything? did I did I misspeak? Um, I, I think that uh, everyone deserves all the rights. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I did I did you know, I misspeak? Oh, seriously, did I misspeak? Um, but um, that's the
0: thing. Like, I wouldn't have if you if you did say that I wouldn't interpret it as misspeaking. Like we're not you know right. we're we're having a spontaneous conversation. Sometimes I get scared that I'm going to use the wrong words, but just know that. Obviously, our hearts are in the right place. Of course, Nando thinks and I think that uh, workers deserve it. And we should have higher expectations for sure. Um, yeah. I hate some of the, you know, I mean, the libs are really good at like defeatist language, um, you know, and, oh, and they, yeah. they try to like sell it as pragmatism, but it's yeah, not. It's, it's intentionally defeatist language. Yeah.
2: Right. I I understood what she was saying as more of a strategic question of how do you move from one assumption to a different or, or one um, one premise to a different premise. Uh, and so I, I mean, I think part of that, I mean, that is the role of organizing of political organizers like that, you know, political organizers are weird fucking things. We're weird creatures because we spend so much of our time thinking about how do we change society around us and how do we and how do we go about doing that? What are the means by which we do that? And most people are focused on kind of the day-to-day of like, I need to, you know, I need to fill out these forms. I need to make sure I pay my taxes. I, my kids are at the right school. I, uh, you know, I have enough food to eat, you know, all of that. It's the, it's like the bread and butter that most people have to deal with. Um, you know, assuming like even, you know, there's a lot of people right now that aren't getting, you know, aren't able to, to uh, deal with those things right now. So organizers are weird because we have to go into these situations, whether it's workplaces, whether it's political campaigns. uh, And we not only make the case of we should pursue this particular strategy. You're faced with a problem. This is what we should do about it. And this is how we're going to do it. And also tell people that we have a chance of winning that like, Going along with the strategy could be dangerous or, or, or risky, especially in a workplace. If you're organizing a workplace, you know, the boss, very often a boss will take any opportunity to to get rid of a, a union organizer immediately, as soon as they can. And we have to be able to make the case that uh, actually you have so much more to gain if you work with us, if you organize with us, um, and stand in solidarity with us, and... Uh, and it's it's a difficult process, and there's no science to it. It's it's largely, yeah. Yeah, and I, I to- think,
0: yeah. As you were talking, Kale, like I, I think it's a lot deeper than that, though, uh, because I'm just kind of reflecting on, just like my personal journey, right, in in terms of my political ideology and all of that. And sometimes I come across videos from early 2017, and like my rhetoric like who i was my rhetoric the way that i saw people in general the way i thought of people in general was very different because we've been and i think this is intentional programmed to not think of others as our comrades or fellow workers like i don't i don't think most people like people don't get like a class analysis in the in in the news that they absorb in fact what they get no is this dehumanizing content, right? Where you're kind of trained to think of people that you might disagree with on cultural issues as subhumans almost, right? And so I I didn't even realize how much that had um, seeped into my own subconscious until fairly recently, because now it's like, I, I just, I see things differently. I just think, Okay. And by the way, like, I think that there are distinctions. Okay. I'm not saying like, oh yeah, like the Boogaloo boys, they're people too. And like, let's work with, no, I'm not saying that. So let's just make sure we put that caveat out there. Um, but if, if there's a person out there, uh, let's say an Amazon worker who's living out of her truck and is living in poverty, but she happens to be anti-abortion, am I going to, reject that person. If that person doesn't believe in reproductive rights. No, I think I can work with her uh, to, to pursue uh, a just society for workers. I think that, you know, and she's a person, she has a different opinion on something. I disagree wholeheartedly with her that those are cultural differences and they do matter. But at the end of the day, what matters the most is fighting together to create a country and to create a world where people can live lives of dignity. Right. Where people don't have to literally use a bucket to go to the bathroom in a truck that they're living in. Like there's so many people who live that experience every single day. Let's stop dehumanizing them further by letting corporate media uh, characterize who they are. And
2: even if when you have someone who has a a bigoted opinion or, uh, you know, they're anti-abortion, something like that. How else are you going to change their mind unless you try to build a relationship with them and unless you try to like if you're just shouting at them like you're a bad person doing a bad thing with bad thoughts in your head, why would they ever join you in 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 your particular you know whether it's a, the larger struggle the larger fights that we're in or, or those particular campaigns we're in, why would they come to your side if if you are just a scold? No one likes a scold
1: so yeah. The modern thing is just shaming in yeah. holding people accountable, quote unquote, um, doesn't work. Doesn't just doesn't work. The, I mean, like every single like psychiatric kind of study on how to change people's minds makes it the every single conclusion is A, it's very difficult to change people's minds and B, it's like you can only really um, cast, give people a sense of doubt about, around their preconceived, you know, kind of their hardened beliefs and then they change their own minds. You know, you really can only just chip away at it. Um, but yeah, yelling at someone is not the best way to do it. I mean, it's just not. Um, go watch American History X.
2: Jeez, that's a, that's a throwback. Um, let, let's just do it's two
1: more. It's a good more. example of it.
2: Okay. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, we're going to do two more just real quick. Um, and then we're going to cut off Super Chats with that. So um, McMindfulness <laughs> asked us, the PRO Act will be challenged in the conservative Supreme Court. Even if it's signed into law, how can we survive, How can it survive the Supreme Court?
1: It may or may not. And if it doesn't, it, it probably won't. Um, but you, you do it anyway. I mean, you, you challenge it. You, you, um, you know, like you, you fight it. I don't know. Like the, 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 the desire, there's, there's tons of roadblocks in the system um, that are, incur- are put there to encourage you to fold your hand um, preemptively. No, we gotta we gotta break away from that mindset. You just go forward, keep pushing. Um, you know, eventually, yes, we we we've talked about this in the past, especially when with the confirmation of Amy Amy Comey Barrett, um, which is a whole other thing. Um, but we you know we gotta disempower the courts. We, courts we had Samuel Moyne on um, to talk about that. The, the courts, they're not. We could, the, the Biden administration could ignore them. Kind of like the Senate parliamentarian. They could ignore them if they wanted to. So we just got to keep pushing forward. We can't keep folding our hands just because there's some, yeah. Is it, is it likely to get 60 votes in the Senate? No, but we keep fighting and we keep pushing until, you know, maybe we'll get some sort of filibuster reform. I don't know, whatever. You just got to keep, you got to keep, uh, you got to keep fighting because the, the odds are overwhelming always, um, but you just got to keep doing it.
2: Right. Strategic but persistent. Right. Yes. Because it's because, you know, we have to find the means by which we do, in fact, make meaningful advances, because the, the extreme version, I don't think this is at all what Nando's talking about, but the extreme version is like is what I call kind of like the ultra take on politics, which is just ultra leftist of just, you know, we need socialism now. We need, you know, uh, we need the utopian. We need whatever our really great society is right now. And it just kind of completely forgoes any means of actually getting there, any kind of strategy. And people rightfully say, no, I'm not going along with that. Like, you are not being serious about politics. And like, it might be a hobby for you, or it might be your particular interest, might be what you spend your whole day doing. But I got to put food on the table. And this isn't a game. So there's a lot of people who, you know, rightfully will say, I'm not going for that. If you just give them the maximum, you know, this is the full uh you know this is what we're like aiming for in its entirety and we need it right immediately now mm-hmm. at the same time there is a lot of things that we do need immediately right now and we need to figure out how to make a uh, real change in that yeah. direction that changes- And this is a
1: legislation that has passed the House of Representatives it's not like we're not talking about like you know seizing the means of production uh you know what I mean like it's right. it's like it's not like it's some, it's already passed the house. Like there's there, not like it's just some
2: yeah.
1: thing out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's likely to pass or even, um, but, but, it, but it, we've gotten past one of the more important roadblocks, which is actually getting a piece of legislation on the books and passed uh, in one of the chambers. Like it's, we're not, you know, we're, we're on the path.
2: Right. I just like taking shots at ultra leftists. So Me too. <laughs> uh, okay, last one um, is uh, eclectic says hi. Could Biden being palatable hi. actually get? Yeah, hi. Could uh, could Biden being palatable actually get in the way of progress abroad and domestically? Not saying we should have Trump, but if the media goes along with Biden, will it make the fight versus the military industrial complex harder?
1: I don't know because I think I mean I I think that Trump. My, my 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 biggest problem with Trump is that he drove everyone crazy and he drove liberals crazy. And it's like you couldn't talk about anything substantive, mm-hmm. anything. There was no progress to be made under Trump because he he was like he drove everyone insane. And I mean, at least now we can talk about these things in, in a more rational way. Um, we can still make fun of the libs. They're still super annoying. But like they're not having like this like this just kind of constant hair on fire thing, which is just. I think, a very bad way to do politics.
0: Right? Yeah. And for me, I mean, what this all kind of demonstrated, um, especially with the latest uh, airstrike in Syria, is that the very blibs who pretended like they were worried about uh, foreign policy under Trump actually don't care about these issues at all. So it's not like um, a different type of news coverage is going to convince them um, that our, you know, efforts or, or what we engage in abroad is, is, is good or bad. Like they, they just don't like Trump. They don't care about foreign policy. They just, in fact, they would prefer that the media stop talking about drone strikes and airstrikes and everything that we're um, engaging in. Uh, but I think that what's both good and bad is what's unlikely to change is this austerity minded ideology that's consistent with both Democrats and Republicans. And so already, I mean, like the the parliamentarian thing, everyone's furious about that because no one heard about a parliamentarian in the Senate during the Trump administration. No one. Right. It wasn't an issue. So it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. People in this country want a $15 an hour minimum wage. And as these conditions continue to deteriorate, I, I mean, I think it's the perfect opportunity for the left to provide the alternative. And uh, you do that through the organizing and you do that through, um, you know, building labor power. And that's why the PRO Act is so important.
2: Uh, actually, you can't raise your wages. You can't have health care because the rule says you can't right now. So yeah. sorry. Yeah. Like, if anything, that you should be enraged by that and you should express that rage. And and I think people will be justifiably really pissed at, at the Biden administration and at, at, uh, Harris and, and like, because unfortunately a lot of it, you know, ends up going to the right. And this is what Anna's saying. Like, the, this is like, it's all the more reason why the left has to make even better cases for why, yeah. uh, basically liberalism cannot give you what, uh, what you need right now. It cannot address the, hmm. the crises.
1: Trump, and, Trump made liberals, Throw themselves into the arms of the pedophiles over at the Lincoln Project, right? Yeah. That's how it drove that's how right. crazy it drove the libs, you know. It's it's just so there's no conversation to be had. Totally
0: laundered the reputation of Bush, which like that's the thing that gets to me. It's like you got the very people who. I mean, I would read their columns. I would, Keith Olbermann, people like Keith Olbermann, right? All of a sudden, like, Bush is not that bad, guys, because Trump is so horrible. Like, what? It's just, Trump did make everyone go crazy and and did help to launder the reputation of George W. Bush, who was awful and continues to be awful. Nothing has changed.
2: And just look at, I say this often but just look at history like just look at the times when the left did well and it was when you had like hegemonic liberalism it wasn't like if anything it's i think it's because the left can actually fulfill the promises that liberalism makes and that but the liberalism can't on its own terms like fulfill them because it, it things like greater freedom uh greater right greater rights greater human rights liberalism can't do that especially when it's like what we have right now with like the neoliberal democratic party because uh it basically is just there to protect property rights and it's not going to challenge who owns what and who has to do what for a living to to make their their live to make their you know income so only the left can can genuinely make that argument and uh you know this is an opportunity that we have that we can't we should try our best not to throw away that we have to make the case that you have in order to respond to the fa- the crises right now. And then also the failures of this administration, you have to move left.
1: Hmm. It's
2: my it's my thoughts.
1: Yeah. Alrighty. Alrighty. Well, uh, I'll you all righty. Well,
2: thank yeah. you. So I was just saying thank you for the super chats. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more answers for your questions. So we
1: look forward <laughs> to that.
0: Some more takes. we 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 have the biggest takes, the best takes.
1: The takes, folks. The takes are very good, very good on this show. The takes. <laughs>
0: All right, guys. Uh, we did give you guys a massive show today ending, um, later than usual, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for your questions. Uh, please share this episode. And if you haven't already subscribed to, uh, Jacobin's YouTube channel, um, and share this episode with a friend. You know, uh, yeah. it's, it's one of the best ways to, um, help build the message that we're put, trying to put out there. And um, more importantly, it could help you with uh, persuading people uh, to come join us in this fight. And uh, make sure you also subscribe to Jacobin Magazine, and uh, also Catalyst. I mean, there's so much good content out there. Um, And Nando, any final words before we go?
1: Oh, yeah, just uh, I hope I never have to hear about the Senate parliamentarian ever again.
0: (laughs) Well, I think uh, I think she's going to come up quite a bit under Biden's administration. Unfortunately, we'll (laughs) see. Um, But anyway, all right, right, guys, Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We love you and we'll see you next weekend.
1: Bye-bye.